Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelum. This week, the conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court appears ready to overturn Roe v. Wade. We'll break down the oral arguments that took place this week. Snohomish County will spend millions on its own to fight homelessness, but it could be nothing more than a drop in the bucket. And Seattle voters will soon decide the fate of Socialist City Council member Shama Sawan. But first, big news on the congressional front this week. As Reagan Dunn, the moderate Republican on the King County Council, has decided to run for election challenging Kim Schreier in the 8th Congressional District. I'm joined now by Democratic strategist Kathy Allen and Republican strategist Randy Peppel. And let's start with you, Randy. Uh, As I said, he's a moderate Republican. He's run for offices before, most notably Attorney General, just got reelected to the King County Council but probably the biggest name that the Republicans could recruit for that 8th district race. Reagan Dunn enters as a most formidable challenger in the 8th district. I think he is the obvious uh, challenger now to the incumbent Kim Schreier, and I would suspect that the other Republicans will uh, drift away, and this will be one of the top 10 congressional races in the country uh, in the next year to determine control of the U.S. Congress. And that uh, is good uh, for Republicans because Reagan Dunn is a far better fit for the 8th District, both as it had been for the last 20 years and as it looks like it's going to be for the next 10. He's a better fit than Kim Schreier. That is a conservative right district. I respectfully disagree, of course. Um, I'll even add the respectfully on it because I do think that uh, Reagan has a formidable capacity just to use that name of his and where most people have to actually work for three months to be able to get name recognition that would even be half of his. The fact is he goes in with name that people recognize as a moderate. This is going to be a year where moderate more than Republican, I think, is going to be more important. And I also think that... um, you know, the Kim Schreier has not got a lot of negatives at all that this woman raises money. This woman is very good. She's a doc. She's, I think, highly respected by her colleagues. And I also think that she's a worker. This woman has actually done the ground game, which is something old Reagan never does. He always kind of runs away to someplace that's not in the district. The fact is, is that he's not someone that's going to be a good field game going to have money. They're both going to have money. No one's going to have less money in this campaign. All of the usual suspects that will be playing in terms of independent expenditures, they're already signed up. So in all of it, yeah, it'll be the it'll take the air out of our political season more than anything else I can think of this next year. Well, Randy, looking at previous elections in the 8th District, uh, I think it's safe to say the Republicans have kind of a shallow bench in that district, or at least, you know, certainly in western Washington. You had Dino Rossi a couple of uh, cycles ago run, uh, but a lot of the criticism was that his heart really wasn't in it. Uh, And then you really had Jesse Jensen, someone who really nobody knew uh, in the last election. Uh, This is kind of a coup for Republican recruiters, isn't it? Well, it's not so much a coup for Republican recruiters, Jeff, as it's a coup for the people of the 8th District. They will get a representative that would actually represent their values. Uh, Reagan Dunn is a well-known commodity. And indeed, as Kathy mentions, he enters with universal name identification. But it's not just because of the fact that his mother 
had spent 10 years representing the district. It's because Reagan has carved out his own identity on the King County Council and indeed in his run for uh, attorney general. So I believe that this is going to be one of those races where it's not so much he was recruited to the position as this position is there for a good Republican candidate to take back the district. And Reagan is a great Republican candidate. And so I think that that is going to make this uh, one of the profile races in the country. But won't he face some criticism because he just got reelected to the King County Council and now he's essentially abandoning that? I, I don't think so in that voters tend not to care a whole heck of a lot about somebody's previous position when uh, they just ran for it. I mean, uh, uh, you have seen this across the state in previous races. You've seen it across the country in previous races. Uh, People focus on what you're going to do next, not what you just ran for. Now, there certainly will be those that will uh, make that attack on Reagan, but that's because they're going to have to start lodging attacks right now because, again, this is going to be a $30 million-plus race that will help determine control of the Congress. I would also say, though, the thing that, that you have to take a look at is we don't have an uh, 8th district yet. The fact is is that there's a uh, reapportionment here. And, you know, I kind of like the old reapportionment for the 8th district because it's been showing an awful lot of inroads of good Democrats. Hey, witnessed by even the last uh, county council race where a, a very liberal um, Democrat ends up winning against longtime stalwart Kathy Lambert. And so I'm going to say the district now looks fine to me. It looks like the great place where we could actually keep Kim in and not worry too much about Reagan and where he lives. The fact is, is that I think that whatever the process is going to be with the reapportionment right now and whether or not it's going up to the full Supreme Court to start all over again, that's going to be as much part of the conversation as the fact that uh, Reagan's name recognition gives him the ability to knock out everybody else who's even thinking about it. Uh, to both of you, I, well, I guess maybe more to to Randy as the Republican strategist. When Reagan Dunn ran for attorney general uh, several years ago, several cycles ago, he was disinvited from a number of Lincoln Day dinners as a result of his support for gay marriage, uh, the fact that he's a moderate. Is he going to run into problems with the Republican base because he is not, for want of a better term, that that Trumpy Republican, that that ultra conservative to the right? I'm sure that the Democrats and, fr- and frankly, Jeff, the media would love to portray this as a fight amongst Republicans over Reagan. Reagan Dunn took a position in 2012 on an initiative that was on the ballot. That initiative is no longer on the ballot. It is now state law. How that will affect a race 10 years later is really just conjecture to try to cast doubt on the race that he's getting ready to run, I think. I think it's more than that. I I, I suspect that Reagan will do just fine with the Republicans because they've seen how badly the Democrats are running the House of Representatives and they want to return Republican control. And Reagan Dunn is a conservative. The media likes to portray anybody who is a Republican that they might like as a moderate because that's easier for people. The reality is Reagan Dunn's a strong conservative that will carry the 8th Congressional District's Republican base with 90 percent support. 
and he will cut in deeply into the moderate Democrat base and the independent base because of the overreach of the Democrats like Kim Schreier in Congress and the trillions of dollars in new spending, the billions of dollars in new taxes and the overregulation that is making our country weaker. And I think that Reagan Dunn will point that out and he'll be very successful in that regard. Ah, you're crazy, Randy. The, the reason that he is perceived as so moderate is actually a benefit. I would not talk yourself out of that moderate uh, Republican position because, you know, when he was running for attorney general, he's running where there are real conservative Republicans, and that's in eastern Washington. The fact is he doesn't need those now. What he needs are the people who are kind of someday, someday I'm going to be, I'll be a Democrat, I'll be independent, I'll be whatever. The fact is, is that it works for him to stay exactly like he is. And oh, by the way, the fact is, is that, you know, taking a look at a lot of things that have happened. I mean, things have gotten pretty progressive, not only in that district, but with those issues, those core issues themselves. We I mean, we have gay Republicans, for goodness sakes. It's okay now for that to happen. We have to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have more with Randy and Kathy and a lot of lawmakers calling it quits when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. We've been talking about the current election cycle and that Reagan Dunn has now announced his candidacy for Congress. Once again, I'm joined by uh, Republican strategist Randy Peppel and Democratic strategist Kathy Allen. But this isn't really the only big news when it comes to not only the congressional races, but the legislative races. Let's talk Washington and, and the legislative districts. We're already seeing a number of people that aren't running again. And uh, Kathy, that uh, could bode well for Democrats, at least by the names that we've seen so far. I gotta say this last weekend, when it's supposed to be quiet Thanksgiving, I had a lot of guests in, but the fact is, is that no, no, no. This was not supposed to be a weekend when 13 different legislators call and say, oh, what do you think? What do you think? Is, is Erickson still in the hospital? Oh, should we count on him being in or out? The fact is, is that this was a weekend when both Sheldon as well as uh, Erickson, I think, have sort of sent some shockwaves that they're not running. And I also think that we've seen a number of cases where the District 10, once again, is a big deal um, as far as what people have been looking at. Uh, Hobbs, take a look at what's going on there. They already have D's and R's lining up. So what I thought was going to be a oh, yawn of a legislative year, uh-uh, I think we're already kind of teaming up here. Already there are four people that are in in regards to that district uh, uh, for Erickson, assuming he's not coming back. And then there's been an awful lot that's been happening as it might relate to just people making transitions of not running. You know, California is one right now where seven uh, Democrats have already said, I'm out of here. And six of the far fewer Republicans have said, I'm gone. So I'm thinking that this is a year where really what we're seeing, perhaps it's kind of that pandemic made me realize it might be more in life. I think there's a whole lot more of that that's happening with legislators as opposed to whether or not they think they can win or not. I, I've seen in ours, we had we have pretty darn cool women that have been there for the duration of the last 15 years that are saying goodbye. And um, and that's disturbing to us. Jeff, I think you're going to see in any post-census election, like we're facing in 2022, that's the time when a lot of incumbents decide, I don't want to work that hard in a new district meeting new people that I'm going to run against. So you're always going to have a little bit more change in, in uh, a post-census 
uh, election like this. However, I think it's the dynamics of the environment that are going to benefit Republicans far more than where the lines are drawn right now. I mean, we're, we're looking at a, a case where the president's popularity uh, has dipped down into the low 40 percentile. Uh, we're looking at a, a state where the governor continues to rule under executive authority only for over 650 days. And I think that's going to benefit Republican candidates generally regardless of where the final lines end up, and frankly, regardless of uh, incumbents that retire. I think if uh, uh, we lose some of the Republican incumbents that uh, we have that decide that they're not going to run, that their successors will be well-positioned given the political environment. Nice try, but I don't agree. I think what's happening right now is we've got a solid, not just majority, but we've got a solid slate, uh, regardless of who's running, mostly because all of those people from the uh, Senate that are thinking of leaving, they're going to be followed up by multiple Democrats who have, uh, I would say, say, strong seats in the House. So I don't know. And you're talking state legislature, not the Congress, right? Yeah. Well, I think Randy's talking the nationally. No, I, that- I, I'm talking exactly about the state legislature. Legislature, Kathy, you're talking about like you were talking in 1993 before we kicked your ass in 94. Um, the, the, the Democrats are getting ready to implode in 2022 oh, because yeah. they have overreached so badly in 2021 with their tax increases, with their regulations, with their social engineering. And so I think that the district lines will be new. So candidates will have to introduce themselves to some new voters, whether they are a Republican or a Democrat. But if you're a Democrat trying to introduce yourself to new voters, your introduction is, I raised your taxes. I made it harder for businesses to survive. And by the way, if you don't agree with me on social issues, I don't like you. And guess what? That's not a way to success. And so I think Republicans will do just fine next year. Well, you've been saying that for 16 years so we'll see i have to say it hasn't happened yet randy i think i'm still kind of playing with the bay with the band all of it i gotta say that i do think we are going to see change in terms of open seat races this year that i had not expected i think that will be the bigger deal and the bigger draw i don't look for by the way the supreme court to do much if anything in regards to redistricting those lines i look at it as just a stall as to when we can get going with who is actually going to be able to run that's the only thing i'm looking at as part of this we have to take another quick break but when we come back more with randy and kathy and the direction of the city of seattle when the come Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Seattle City Politics still is, I don't know if interesting is the right word as ever, but nevertheless, uh, we have another election coming up next week, and this is the recall election for Seattle City Councilwoman Shama Sawant. Already, this has become one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive, race in Seattle City Council history. Uh, About a million and a half dollars already uh, spent on this. And it's all to see whether or not the socialist member of the city council will be kicked out of office. Uh, Joined once again by Democratic strategist Kathy Allen, Republican strategist Randy Peppel. And uh, let me start with you, Kathy. Uh, Do you think Sawant gets recalled? I do. I do. 
Uh, how long does she stay recoiled? That's another story. But the fact is, is when I look at it, uh, you know, right now, I, may, I was cruising around up there. I've been going, unfortunately, to a lot of doctor's appointments up there. And so from that perspective, what's been happening is I get up there and one day the Kashama stuff is like, oh, my gosh, everywhere. The next day, it's been written on. The next day, it's taken down. The next day, it's put up. Uh, I think because of the time of the year, because of the unusual likelihood of an election in December, I think this bodes well for her being recalled. And actually, the number of people that I know that are actually up there and um, voting against her, these include stalwarts, the actually liberal socialists that Randy and I have had speak at our class are working against Shama. And that struck me as quite unusual, too. Usual suspects are actually looking to get rid of her. So I think it's going to be, I think it'll be an interesting race in terms of what people look at every time they want to get rid of a council member. I mean, there's a few of them I've been thinking about myself. In all of this, I really believe that, yeah, I think it's going to be uh, the beginnings of us going back to some normalcy in terms of who gets on that council. And Randy, based on what we saw in November's elections, do you think the city is shifting a little bit more towards the moderate end of things because you had a Republican and Ann Davison win, you had Bruce Harrell uh, win over the very progressive Lorena Gonzalez for mayor. Uh, you had another more conservative, for want of a better term, or more moderate, rather, win that open seat for the Seattle City Council. It seemed like the progressives lost big in November. Hey, you know, Joe, I, I have to push back on that narrative coming out of Seattle that progressives didn't win. I mean, I've met Sarah Nelson, who was the winning uh, city council member, ran for an open seat. To call her a moderate is to not understand the word moderate. She is very liberal. It's just she was running against someone who was an abolitionist, an anarchist. And in the city, in the city mayoral race, Bruce Harrell won. Bruce Harrell is a far left Democrat. It just so happened he was running against a socialist. Lorena Gonzalez believes in the redistribution of property at all levels directed by government. So the reality is Democrats in Seattle, 52% switched enough to reality because uh, 48% stayed with the abolitionist. And it, Lorena Gonzalez got there as well. And, and the fact is, Seattle is just as crazy liberal as it always has been. It's just the far left overreached tremendously in this last election. They tried to impose somebody like Lorena Gonzalez, who was nothing more than a labor organizer to take over the mayor's office. And they wanted to have an abolitionist take over the city attorney's office. And that was an overreach. And the voters rejected that. But that does not mean that Seattle is any less liberal than it's always been. It continues to be up there with San Francisco among the nation's most liberal large city. You know, that, that that's just reality. It will be interesting to see whether someone like Bruce Harrell, who certainly did not get the job done when he was on the city council, can do a better job as mayor. And as someone who lives in the suburbs and would like to be able to go into the city, 
I hope he succeeds. I think he will, only because the rest of the population is ready for it. I got to say that right now, there's just this real sense of even some of the most progressive of the socialist folks, I got to tell you, they're sitting there apologizing. Um, I can't tell you the number of folks who said, you know, I thought it would be good. We would try these things. And, you know, Amazon should be paying some more. And the fact is, is what happens. Amazon's the largest taxpayer in your city, Kathy. I mean, that's the problem I like with the him. left I like Seattle. him. I like him. Actually, I'm surprised at the number of colleagues of ours, former reporters, former, I would say, political junkies, pollsters. I have like now 40 friends working over at Amazon when I've had, I think, two. And one of them was your daughter. The thing that I look at now is that these are like, no, no, I think that um, I think that the nature of who is the enemy to quote others greater than I, that right now the enemy is not the, I would say, the movers and shakers who want to get a lot of socialist policy done. The enemy right now is that people just want to get back something that's stable and the, and, and the number of people who are oldsters like myself that are actually saying, you know, I don't want any of this crap anymore. No, no, I, I, want, I want to get rid of all the current council that's still left. The fact is, is that people do think we went way too far. That hand of the clock is swinging back fast. And I think it is going to be a long time before you see crazy ideas actually get to the point where they get a vote. And as we kind of wrap up here, uh, I wanted to ask you, Kathy, we've seen on the Democratic side, the late ballot game, the ground game seems to have really worked. We had uh, a couple of years ago when Shama Sawan ran for re-election on election night, she was down by, I think it was eight points. She came back to win. Uh, we saw in some of these uh, most recent elections, progressives able to close the gap a little bit more. They weren't able to overcome some of their election night deficits. But w- what does that say about the ground game? I doesn't say anything right now. I'm still thinking that covid at least COVID became an easy thing to blame. Oh, we can't go door to door because of it. Oh, that'd be terrible. But the thing is, this is all turning into an online game. It's turning on to a different way of approaching and getting many more folks involved based upon, I mean, if you are using social media, if you are getting very adept at how you actually can move people that way, that's an advantage to our very young population that is not represented proportionate to their numbers. Not that they are in many other urban areas either. But the fact is, is that I do see the ground game has changed, but it has to do with computer prowess. It has to do with database management. It happens, you know, it really has more and money. It has to do with those three that doesn't re- rely on having 16 different unions with all different kind of ground game people they can buy and, and, and hide it, you know, in terms of going door to door to be able to convince people to vote for them. I think we're looking at much more of uh, just the tech revolution. Randy? Late turnout has changed dramatically over time, Jeff. When, when I was first working on absentee ballots uh, in the old days, before everybody voted by mail, it was the Republicans who won afterwards. In fact, in 1989, uh, we won the King County executive race, the last time a Republican won, on absentee ballots after election night. So it has just changed as people have focused their turnout efforts over the last 20, 30 years. So uh, the, the progressives now very much push on on their turnout efforts over the last weekend, over the last couple of days. And that's why you saw Shamus want overcome a deficit of, I think it was 12 points on election night 
uh, a couple years ago. And why you saw the ones, uh, the, the, the furthest of the left candidates this time, come back by 10 points or more after election night. Uh, so that's just a function of when do you deploy your turnout work? When do you get your people on uh, onto the street to get your uh, folks to turn out their ballots? And for the far left, it's been much more last weekend, push it all the way up until Tuesday night with the more traditional efforts. And, and I would count myself among this. I'm working turnout from the day ballots are dropped three weeks out all the way through, but I don't try to leave all of it till the, till the end because that is a risky proposition. And we're going to have to leave it there. Republican strategist Randy Peppel, Democratic strategist Kathy Allen, thank you so much. Still to come, Snohomish County tries to up its game when it comes to the fight against homelessness when the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelis. Snohomish County is trying to figure out just how to fight homelessness. Now, this is a major problem for the region, and so far we focused a lot of our attention on Seattle and King County. Joining me now on the Como Newsline is Kent Patton, spokesman for Snohomish County. And so what's the plan? Well, let me let me tell you that Snohomish County, anybody who lives in the region and in many parts of the country knows that we're facing a very serious affordable housing crisis. Uh, um, if you talk to teachers, first responders, construction workers, people who work in restaurants, you know, they'll tell you that they're having an increasingly difficult time affording housing in the communities in which they live and work. Um, and so something has to be done. Uh, in Snohomish County in particular, um, it, it's it's been really stunning to look through the statistics. We have uh, right now, if someone wanted to afford a two-room bedroom apartment, in normal market um, costs, they they would and they earn minimum wage. They would have to work three full time jobs to afford a two bedroom apartment. Um, also, there's been a fifty to to sixty seven percent decline in low rent housing in our region from 2011 to 2017. So while we've seen housing costs escalate, we've seen the supply of housing significantly decline. And that's why we're in the middle of this crisis. And so uh, Snohomish County leaders, including the county executive, chair of the county council, vice chair of the county council, today proposed to tap into uh, what we call HB 1590. And that is a piece of legislation that after much public debate and scrutiny was passed through the Washington state legislature. And it gives county councils, city councils, town councils the opportunity uh, to pass a one-tenth of one percent sales tax. And this money would go towards affordable housing as well as shelter for those who are homeless. Um, we believe that now is the right time. Um, we're in the middle of sort of these multiplying crises between the opioid crisis, a crisis of homelessness, housing affordability crisis, and of course, a uh, global pandemic that has impacted people's ability to afford and stay in their home. So we really want to speed up um, the, this uh, uh, chance to start to build more affordable housing. So how much is this going to cost? The, I think the average person who shops in Snohomish County, and again, we have a lot of folks that come from other counties to shop in Snohomish County, um, it, would, it would, you know, on average equal out to about $27 a year. 
But again, it depends on consumption rates. Um, what it would do, however, is give us an opportunity to more than double our planned affordable housing stock um, between now and five years from now. So right now we have 200 units planned using federal, state, and local funding. This would allow us to build an additional 300 units over that five-year span. And again, the need is so great. You know, we wish we could do more, but this is the tool we have at our disposal. Um, and we have to start doing something because, as you know, Jeff, what will happen is workers, if they can't afford housing, they move further away, which means they have a longer commute, bad for the environment. If they move further away, maybe they get a different job. That means companies can't find workers to work for them, bad for the economy. And of course, we want people to be able to house in our community at all income levels. Um, we don't want these islands where only certain people can afford housing. We need a community in which people can live in the community that they want to live in and the community that they work. So how big is the need in Snohomish County for affordable housing? And I think the media, and, and I include myself in that, focus a little too much on Seattle and King County just simply because it's the biggest population center. But Snohomish County is not immune. Absolutely not. And, and here's one of the interesting things. Um is that Snohomish County is the third largest county in the state of Washington. So King is first, then Pierce, and then Snohomish County. Um, what's different between King County, Pierce County, and Snohomish County is we have a, a much larger rural population than urban population. Even so, so that, you know, we have better housing costs in general than many other parts of Western Washington. Even having said that, over 30 3% of households in Snohomish County are cost burdened by their housing. And by that, we mean they spend more than 30% of their income on housing costs. Um, nearly half of all households in Snohomish can County can't afford an average two-bedroom apartment if it's offered at fair market rent without becoming cost burdened. Um, there was an analysis done in uh in 2019, and that Snohomish County would need 127,000 additional units of housing by 2040. That's about 6,300 new units each year for no household in Snohomish County to spend more than 30% of their income towards housing. So the need is tremendous. Um, the supply of housing just isn't there. Um, I, I think everyone was hoping that maybe there would be a significant federal program or significant state program. Well, those have not materialized to the level to meet the level of need. And so we are taking this step in order to say we have to start doing something or else our economy suffers, our environment suffers, and of course, people will suffer. Everyone can look if they drive anywhere in Snohomish County, King County, or Pierce County, you see that the housing crisis has translated into many more signs of visible homelessness. Um, we have to start doing more with folks at the lower end of, of the income bracket and those who are homeless in order to, to not make this problem even worse. Um, so again, for public safety purposes, for environmental purposes, and, and just as sort of moral human beings, we have to do something. And this is the one tool that's available to us. There's only so much that the local government can do. You, you mentioned this huge need and a, and a lack of supply. 
Are you working with developers to build more housing? Because you'd think that the market would try to sort this out by developers wanting to build where there's this huge demand. Absolutely. So Executive Summers and Linwood Mayor Nicholas Smith in 2019 set up what we call the Housing Affordability Regional Task Force. That brought together um, representatives from, you know, mayors and city councilors from almost every city and town in Snohomish County. And they spent 2019 and the beginning of 2020 putting together a five-year plan. And part of that plan is looking at how can the county and cities and towns incentivize developers to develop more. Uh, But as you know, Jeff, you know, if you're a developer and, you know, you're in the business of making housing, you make a lot more money from building a million-dollar home than you do from building um, low-income or affordable housing. It's just a fact of the economy. Um, And as housing prices have skyrocketed over the last 10 years, um, that's only gotten more so. So, yes, we're we're trying to use every tool that we have available to us. We're using our American Rescue Plan Act federal funds in order to really try to do some – some movement on getting more shelter, more um, continuum of support for folks who uh, are experiencing homelessness. And then we also want to use this tool so that we can actually start to build out more quickly uh, some of those affordable housing needs. It's, It's such a major crisis and we really need to move now. If we don't act now, um, it really, you know, even now, even if, you know, the council were to authorize this um, by the end of the month, which is what their uh, plan is, even then it will be a couple of years before any of this uh, resource housing can hit the market. So we really, you know, we're in crisis. We really need to move now so that when those couple of years go by, we start to have a greater supply of affordable housing. Um, and, you know, nobody... Nobody wants to raise taxes, but when you have a crisis of this magnitude, we really have to uh, take this approach. That's Kent Patton, spokesman for Snohomish County. Thank you so much for joining us. Still to come, the U.S. Supreme Court poised to strike down Roe v. Wade when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. The 6-3 conservative majority on the United States Supreme Court seems poised to overturn or at least alter Roe v. Wade. This and oral arguments heard this week. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And this is the most consequential case on abortion in decades, ever since the court had acknowledged the right to abortion and then reaffirmed it in several following cases. What did we learn from the justices questioning today? Well, as you mentioned, it's a six to three majority, conservative majority. Many of those conservative justices in other writings or or conversations have indicated that they are solidly against abortion in this country. Uh, Although every one of them in their hearing said that would have no bearing on how they decide the law. But uh, in the oral arguments today, which is extraordinary now because we can all hear them, they they let us hear the audio portion of this, and this went on for several hours. Uh, all the questioning seemed to indicate that they didn't really go along with some of the earlier decisions that the reason uh, you would give a right to abortion up until the point where a fetus is viable outside the womb, and that's usually in the 23-24 week period, not 15 weeks, as Mississippi uh, has now outlawed abortions after 15 weeks, Texas doing it after six weeks, even more restrictive. 
Uh, but one of the uh, justices, Chief Justice Roberts, says viability, it seems to me, has nothing to do with choice. Why is 15 weeks not enough time? Uh, so he's usually the least conservative or usually the, the more moderate person of all the conservative judges in, in swinging a vote one way or the other. Brett Kavanaugh saying the Constitution is neither pro-life or pro-choice on abortion. If we think the prior precedents are seriously wrong, why don't we return to neutrality? So there's a, a, usually a precedent where they say unless something has dramatically changed since the last uh, vote in the Supreme Court, that they usually let the earlier decision stand. But it now appears, at least from the questioning and some of the comments that the judges made, that they may not do that in this case, which would mean that it becomes a free-for-all for states to say, well, we're going to put these restrictions in. And if you're a woman seeking an abortion, you'll have to go to a state that allows it. Well, this is not just a, a Supreme Court precedent. We have had subsequent cases that have upheld Roe versus Wade, haven't we? So this would be a huge change. It would be a very big change here. Uh, and in fact, uh, Justice Sotomayor uh, later on basically said, uh, look, if, if you're arguing that the precedent was badly decided, that it has warrants a complete reversal. Uh, Justice Sotomayor says, will this institution survive, quote, the stench it creates if this court adopts that approach? If people believe it's all political, how will we survive as a court? Uh, and that's what a lot of people are asking today, that uh, this is really uh, based on politics and not on uh, the Constitution, and which the pro-choice folks were arguing it is a matter of liberty for women in this country to be able to make that choice. All right, ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jeff. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and so much more. Available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening and have a good week.